good morning. You know, if it's 10 o'clock, it's time for Babs Rolls Ivy and Love Babs Love Talk. <laughs> so this is the Friday, the 10 o'clock time when I actually have a guest in studio and we have these rich conversations. And today my guest is Melissa Barton, the curator over at the Beinecke Library. Hello. Welcome. Come closer like okay. it's a kiss. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's like, I got this big thing in my face. What's going on? So we can capture all this rich conversation. So you're the curator over at the Beinecke. I'm one of seven curators. Yes. Yes. So. And you have this exhibit over there called Gather Out of Stardust, a Harlem Renaissance. Yes. And it's wonderful. Thank you. I came to the press. Um, Mike Moran sent me an email. I guess he sent all the press an email. Mm-hmm. And we all showed up. And uh, and I was just floored by the depth and breadth of this exhibit. Like the Beinecke is becoming cool again. <laughs> right? Like it's just, it's a jewel in New Haven that is becoming very, very cool. <laughs> so tell me, tell me about this exhibit. I mean, I don't think it's any accident that it's Black History Month and... It's the yeah. Harlem Renaissance. and Sure. So this year um, is actually this, well, last 2016 is the 75th anniversary of our African-American collection at Beinecke, which is named after James Weldon Johnson. So we decided that we wanted to spend all of this school year, 2016, 2017, celebrating that collection. And um, we had a small exhibition in the fall about the life of Johnson with some highlights from the collection. And then we were going to have kind of a big full building blowout exhibition in the spring featuring the core strength of that collection, which is the Harlem Renaissance. Mm-hmm. The collection was founded in 1941, just kind of at the sunset of that period in American cultural history. And so the founders of the collection, which include you know, Carl Van Vechten founded the collection with the help of Grace Nail Johnson, um, who at that time was Johnson's widow, uh, they that period was just ending. So it was something that they were very consciously trying to memorialize. And as a result, we have a lot of really amazing material from that period that was kind of collected in that time, including Langston Hughes's papers, um, Johnson's own personal papers, some manuscripts of Zora Neale Hurston's, um, the papers of the poet Claude McKay, some of Van Vechten's own papers, including all of the correspondence that he had with many of these amazing writers and all the photographs that Van Vechten took of all of these writers. And so there's just a lot of material that, as you said, the breadth and the depth, this is something that we wanted to show that Beinecke Library is the place to come to see this period in all of its breadth and depth. It is rich. I mean, I got to tell you, it's quite rich. And I was struck most by um, the personalness of a lot of these pieces, particularly around the letters, mm-hmm. you know, that these, you know, I they, I don't think they thought of themselves famous in their day. Right. But when you look back now and you sort of look at these letters and they were talking to each other, you know, I think it's the equivalent of um, social media now. Right. Like, you know, you would say all these personal things, but they wrote these wonderful letters to each other. Right. Um, talking about um, like I read the Alan Locke letter mm-hmm. to um to Hughes. To yeah. Hughes. And he was like, people are insisting that I know you. Right. <laughs> and it's I don't great, know you. Right? And so, I want to come look for you. But, I, you know, it's a lost thing to come look for you on a ship. And, yeah. and I just thought it was so rich that he would write in this very sort of expressive, but, you know, it's just a quality and a, and a, and a swag to these letters. That yeah. I just, uh, there is something really amazing about reading a letter from, say, you know, Langston Hughes to 
um, Claude McKay in this period. Neither of them actually lived in Harlem for very much of the period that we think of as the Harlem Renaissance. They were both there for like a year and then they kind of took off to do other things. And so they're writing letters to each other to stay in touch and also about what's going on there. So to read this letter from Hughes where he's talking about all of these writers who we could identify now saying, you know, Nella Larson's new book is out. And we're like, oh, we know that book. We read it in, you know, our university classrooms and people know it. And it's called Quicksand. And, you know, that um, he would say Wally Thurman, who we call Wallace Thurman, <laughs> um, is working on a new book. And so he's mentioning all these people, you know, and Zora is doing this thing. And, you know, all these people who we know now as these lions of this literary yes. movement. Uh, you know, but they're his buddies. It's really I know, incredible. Isn't that the yeah. See, I think that's the coolest yeah, thing. Yeah, I love that too. <laughs> I, I, and I think that's why I was so struck by these letters and the personalness. And I was also in love with the photos because you've got some um, Van Gisee photos up too. Yeah, so we have this really wonderful, uh, we have a few individual Van Gisee prints and then we have this really wonderful po- portfolio of Van Gisee prints that was actually made in the 70s from Van Gisee's original negatives that were taken in the 20s and mm-hmm. 30s. Um, when Van der Zee kind of experienced this renaissance in his reputation after uh, after he was exhibited in the late 60s, he, he, became, he was kind of re- rediscovered. And so they made this portfolio. And the prints are really beautiful. They are. Um, yeah. They are beautiful. I, so, I was, uh, when I was there with, uh, for the press thing, um, Brian Slatery, who works for the New Haven Independent, mm-hmm. we were standing there looking at the, the pictures of the black women on the beach. Yeah, that's a great photo. And we thought, you know, can you imagine in 1920 that level of frivolity? Yeah. Like black women in bathing suits, mm-hmm. being free black women, enjoying, you know, in the midst of all this other stuff that's going around. But in that moment, they were just happy, carefree black women enjoying yeah, the beach. they just look so fabulous. Yeah, like They're having a great time and they're beautiful. And yeah, it's a really That's one of my favorite. Photo. And that picture has stayed in my mind and in my spirit for a long time because oh. you just don't see carefree black women that way. And so I thought that was... Yeah, and that you know. contrast is something that we wanted to show because people tend to try to think about the Harlem Renaissance in one way. You know, they think about it as... A political movement or they think about it as a literary movement or they mm-hmm. think about it as the jazz age with speakeasies and prohibition then it's actually all of those things are going on all at once so yeah you know the NAACP is marching in Manhattan and these women are lying on the beach looking fabulous and those are happening at the same time you know so yes and that's yeah. that's good that's a good point to make because you're right I think we do tend to think of the Harlem run at least when I think of it and it's one of my favorite um, snapshots of, of history for me I mean that's when black people were their most glamorous mm-hmm. and their most sort of you know free and mm-hmm. the most free in the sense that you know art was driving things and right. literature were driving things yeah. and and music was driving things and uh so um so i'm I'm just uh amazed by that particular time frame um uh, what i what what else I found interesting was um the formality of things like um uh cards that announced parties. Yeah. Right? <laughs> right. Because you can't send out an email, right? Or post it on Facebook, I'm having a party. So, um, yeah, those cards are tremendously popular. Everybody who comes to see the exhibit loves them. They're, they are, uh, the for people who haven't seen it, these these small, they're, they're the exact same size as business cards. Um, they are used to advertise what were called at the time house rent parties, which were parties that people held to raise money to pay their rent. Mm-hmm. Um, so they would, you know, get maybe a three piece band or just a piano player or somebody to come in their house and play some music and they would be dancing and they might sell some food too. And then they would sell, 
uh, illegal liquor, bathtub gin or what have you, um, at the same time. And they would advertise them saying that they were whist parties, whist like the card game, um, so that, you know, there was some kind of like a codedness in how they were advertised too. And they have wonderful names, you know, so like Pinky, Pinkney and Epps is one of them and um, Minnie and Curly are having a party. So they have like wonderful names of people on them. People just love these. Um, they were collected by Langston Hughes. He collected these cards, which is how they came into uh, Beinecke's collection. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and there were, I mean, to think that it was so easy to have these printed, that there was a printer who actually, he was called the Wayside Printer. He wheeled a printing press down the street in Harlem, down the streets of Manhattan, printing <laughs> things like this for people. That's a so hustle. it was much easier to get things printed in wow. the 20s than Can it is now. I you know. know. I mean, yeah, you could go to Tyco or whatever. Kinko's to, you know, Kinko's, whatever. Yeah, yeah. To have but, these, but this is kind of the equivalent of that in some yeah. way. So, yeah. Oh, my gosh. That was cool. <laughs> i tell you what else. I, uh, I mean, when I was there, I was talking to Mike Morand about, and he, he had made reference about how um, the art sort of um sort of stood the test of time like when you see these these like even this like mm-hmm. the cover of this book and the art pieces mm-hmm. um particularly around um um like uh the fonts and mm-hmm. and the way things were drawn and and the the the, the look of things yeah um, just stood the test of time and they look equally as stunning now as they did when they were first sort of produced. Yeah, I think that the that we think of this period uh, very much in terms of its design, especially the work of Aaron Douglas, because mm-hmm. he um, is, you know, did the cover. He did the little graphic that's on the cover of the catalog for the exhibition that you're pointing to, and also the covers of all of these books. And so we think of we th- we picture his work when we think of this period, and the lettering that's on the cover of the catalog is also his lettering, um, and we. Th- we think of all of those things as being a, of a piece with this this arrow. It's a, vi- a very visually alive period, and so and and Douglas's work is tremendously uh, respected now, and people people love his work now, and it's um, and people are still looking looking to it with with interest. I think. So tell me tell me a little <laughs> bit about you, Melissa. Like, how do you come to this work? Like, how does this become what you are an expert in? <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, it's it's an interesting story, I guess. I you know I uh, grew up in the Midwest. I came to Yale for undergraduate, mm-hmm. uh, my undergraduate degree, and so as an undergraduate, I um, was an English major. You know, loved literature, wanted to study literature. I took a class with a professor who still teaches at Yale now, named Robert Steptoe, and uh, he was teaching a survey of African American literature, and I was just captivated by this material. You know, I had some familiarity as a younger person with lots of other uh, African-American writers, but um, that was what really got, you know, got me. And then, and he showed, I still remember this now, in his class, he loved to show, he used um, slides at the time, so that (laughs) reveal my age a little bit. Uh, But he showed slide reproductions of the cover of The Weary Blues, of the cover of the autobiography of an ex-colored man that um, Aaron Douglas did. And he talked a lot about this at the time. And I thought that was really amazing. And I was actually, I got a job at Beinecke Library as a sophomore, um, putting book plates in the books and uh, doing that kind of thing. And so, because I just wanted to work at Beinecke because it seemed like it would be a cool thing to do. I saw a piece, somebody... Somebody wrote a piece, I think I read it in the Times, that the Beinecke is a place that even Harry Potter would love. Yeah, I mean, there's just a, there's a mystique <laughs> about it, right? It so, is, but it's cool now. Yeah, like I, yeah. I, think it was, I think it was sort of an imposing sort of building 
for people. But now it seems much more accessible. I don't know what well, that's, that's about. Well, that's great to hear. That makes me really happy to hear because we would love for it to seem more accessible to people, at least our exhibit spaces, uh, so that, you know, because our exhibits are free, they're open to the public, we want people to come in and look at them. Um, we spend a lot of time working on them, <laughs> so we want people to come and see them. So um, I was working at Beinecke, and a friend of mine was also working at Beinecke, who was a couple of years ahead of me, and she was working for the curator of American literature then. And she, when she was about to graduate, she said, do you want my job working wow. for the curator of American literature? So that was when... So I was going to be a junior, and so she introduced me to her. She's retired now. Her name was Patricia Willis. And uh, so I started working for uh, Pat Willis. And at that time, this was in uh, the you know, 2000, 2001, 2002. 2002 was the 100th birthday of Langston Hughes. Mm-hmm. So I worked with Pat Willis on an exhibition that Beinecke had then about the birthday of Langston Hughes and life of Langston Hughes. So that just got me so much more into this material. Um, and I thought, you know, this is something that I could really specialize in, tell, help people learn about because not that many people know as much about it. And so I decided that I wanted to go and get my doctorate and help people learn about African-American literature. So that wow. was, that was kind of a big thing. Yeah. <laughs> because I, I, I would imagine that comes with a great deal of responsibility to, to sort of want to be the the person that is the purveyor of this rich history. Do you yeah, feel that? I mean, I guess I didn't want to be yeah, not the one person, but no, one but, of the people. Who, one of the yeah. people. And, um, and I just thought, you know, this really is a history that needs to be better known. And I want people to know about it. Mm-hmm. And I want to be one of the people that helps people learn about it. And so I thought I wanted to be a professor. Um, I went to grad school thinking I was going to become a college professor. Uh, I ended up thinking maybe I don't want to do that for a variety of reasons. And that was when um, people who I had previously uh, known at, at Beinecke said, oh, hey, we have an opening for the curator of American literature. They had split it into two positions. So they were looking for somebody and I was just finishing grad school. So they brought me back. Wow. Yeah, it was just a, it was a miracle in my life <laughs> at the time. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm, I... I'll tell you one thing. You you have a great passion for this. And uh, you have a great passion. And you are so knowledgeable and inviting about this work. Um, I just noticed that when you when I was there and you were talking about this work. And I'm like, well, she's just not playing with this. She's really <laughs> about this this work and the importance of this work. So, um, so when you decide to do this, what's the planning like to sort of bring this whole thing together like what does that look like so we have uh, an, ex- an exhibition coordinator who works at Beinecke who who does a lot of the planning in terms of she she has figured out an entire calendar with a whole bunch of deadlines uh, that we have to meet and she has made all of these uh, mock-ups of the cases <laughs> so we can wow. plan, yeah so we can like lay out the case plan the layouts of like the building cases a house. Ahead of time. and then she has to do all this work um, in terms of coordinating with uh our conservation department, because everything that gets exhibited has to be reviewed by conservation to make sure that it can be displayed, um, you know, in terms be displayed in the light for three months without being damaged and be, you know, held open. And then the, at the binding won't be damaged and some things have to be repaired before they can be displayed. So there's all this advanced work that has to be done. And it's that, uh, uh, our exhibitions coordinator, whose name is Olivia Hilmer, who does a lot of that work, um, of, of, of organizing and planning all of that. So then my job is just to choose the things that I want 
to have go in the cases mm-hmm. um, and choose, you know, which which letters, which, you know, if I pick this book, what page do I want it to be open to and all of that. And I have to turn all of that in um, at, at a certain moment. And so that that planning, um, you know, I think we do it. We start working about 18 months or more out wow. from the exhibition um, thinking about that material. I mean, the the whole selection has to be made about six months out. Mm-hmm. So really even, you know, 18 months or even two years out from when the exhibition opens, we are uh, doing a lot of the research to try to figure out, okay, what's the story that I want to tell and what things am I going to show to tell that story? And what do we have that I can use to mm-hmm. tell that story? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, trying to kind of discover things uh, that we might not have known about in the collection to use and that kind of thing. So how did you come up with this title? What is what is what is this title about? The uh, the title is taken from a Langston Hughes poem. Mm-hmm. It's a you know post Renaissance post Renaissance poem. It's from 1947. But I wanted to have a title. I was kind of tossing around in my mind the idea of of using the word gather in the title. Mm-hmm. And it was actually my husband who said to me, "Well, why don't you see if there's a lyric from a spiritual that has the word gather in it?" Wow. I was like, "Oh, that's a good idea." So, the, but then I said, "Okay, well, I have." you know, this might work even better. And I pulled down my collected uh, works of Langston Hughes and look in the first line index for, you know, the word gather. So I just found a Langston Hughes poem that had the word gather in it. <laughs> that's pretty close Instead, though. Yeah. yeah. That's really and cool I, cause too. I thought it was, I thought this line was perfect when yes. I saw it. So, um, and you know, if you read it in the context of the rest of the poem, it, it sound it seems a little bit different. The poem is called dream dust. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but it really works for, for this. And what I wanted to do, the reason that I was really kind of interested in that word and that idea is that I wanted to show that that this is a period that relies on all kinds of uh, notions of 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 gathering of, mm-hmm. of people getting together of uh, pulling things together of making anthologies of collecting things um, of people working together and you know so I wanted to show all of those aspects uh, in that title that is fascinating I am moved by it's like building a house you know what I mean? Like, it's not like, well, I'm just going to pick this and this, this, and just throw it over here. Like, there's some real deep thought process, long period of time to sort of come up with the right. Um, so what is your favorite piece? What are your favorite pieces in this? Oh, exhibit? gosh. It's really hard to choose. But I think one of my favorite pieces going in was um, that, I, that I hadn't known about until I started working on the exhibition is this guest book that James Weldon Johnson and Grace Nell Johnson kept in their apartment in manhattan yeah i yeah, i just was looking at that i yeah. was like because I, I i never associate guest books with somebody's like home or entertaining yeah. i just think about it in terms of funerals yeah right so, but i bet you would i <laughs> um, bet you would so has its roots there's, there well there's some evidence in the book that even their guests thought this was kind of weird oh. like, so <laughs> that you know there's somebody who writes um uh with like signs it and then signs two aliases for example so there's some suggestion that like this was kind of a fun thing that they did, but it wasn't that something that everyone did okay. in their homes at this time. But what is so cool about it is that you then have what looks like this one party where you could name any major Harlem Renaissance figure and they were there at this one party. party. Yeah. Oh my so, gosh. Like could Paul Robeson was there. Langston Hughes was there. W.E.B. Du Bois was there. Like um, Arthur Schomburg, the founder of the Schomburg collection was there. You know, so like every, everybody <laughs> like, this was is there. a level of coolness I can't even fathom, it's right? It's really pretty, I mean, it, there's really an aura about it, right? Yes. So that's really great. And then I love the kind of really random, tiny ephemeral pieces that you wouldn't imagine would have survived so we have this another thing that i kind of just came across 
in planning this exhibition is um uh this f- like little folder um with Claude McKay's picture on it that's in Russian. So I had to actually ask our one of our catalogers who reads Russian to translate it for me because I don't read Russian and she t- she is the one who told me that it is Claude McKay's membership card for the Russian Communist Party Whoa. because he went to Russia in 1922 um, to research Bolshevism. He was very interested in, in communism and in the Bolshevik Re- Revolution. So then he joined the Communist Party. So that we have this piece wow. that was that. Yeah, that is stunning, um, and it so, survived. And it survived, which I think is pretty amazing. So yeah, I love I love the you know kind of little random pieces like that. And yes, I I love all the letters and I love the photographs and yeah. Yeah, yes. So I start to say that I love everything, <laughs> but those are some of the things. So now when you're doing this, uh, Melissa, uh, do you, <laughs> did you learn some new things that you were like, oh, I didn't know that before. Or I didn't know that. Hmm. I mean, yes, there were a lot of things I learned. You know, as I said earlier that, you know, I'm a, I'm a specialist in African-American literature. That's what I specialized in in graduate school. But my research, my dissertation research was in the period that kind of immediately follows the okay. Renaissance. And so I, one reason I decided to do this exhibition was I thought it would be a great opportunity for me to learn a lot about this okay. period because people always ask me, oh, you know, you study African-American literature. Well, what do you know about the Harlem Renaissance? And <laughs> because that's what everybody knows about, right? Yes. So, um, so I wanted to, to really get a solid footing on it. And so I learned a lot um, of things that I, that I didn't already know in, in order to plan the exhibition. So I can't think of a specific example right now, but. So how, how have, how has this exhibit been received? Are people coming? Are people liking it? Are you getting any feedback? You know, people are coming. Um, and, and I am getting a, a little bit of feedback um, just from, there's been a, a lot of responses from people who I know who have seen it. And it's been incredibly gratifying to have people come and see it and it just does seem like there have been a lot of people in the building we've seen a lot of people from the new haven community come especially to some of our events mm-hmm. which has been really wonderful i've come to some yeah. and i've been you know um, i it's one of my i'm telling you i tell everybody it's one of my favorite places and you know and i would even say uh if you are dating somebody bring them to one of those friday talks right <laughs> one of those I think it's, is it a Monday well, talk? We have these Monday talks. A Monday yeah. talk. I mean, I think those are amazing. Like, They've been really wonderful. We ha- um, So this is 4 p.m. every Monday, mm-hmm. um, or most Mondays. We have a talk, and it's almost in, always this term um, related to the Harlem Renaissance exhibition. There are a few that are not, but m- almost all of them are. And they've been really great. This past uh, Monday, a graduate student at Yale gave a great talk. It was really about um, George Schuyler who was this kind of iconoclastic figure in this period. And he wrote this satire uh, called Black No More that was kind of um, an an early example of African-American science fiction. So this is what the student talked about. And it was really wonderful and well-received. And Um, you've had some music. And there was a music performance. Because I came to the James Weldon Johnson celebration Mm -hmm. where you had the um, shades. Yes. Uh And they were, they were fabulous. Yeah. Uh, and but then you had a, a, a another woman, yeah, I think, singing Lisa Williamson. Yes. She's an incredible singer. She's a trained uh, soprano who she, she got her degree at Yale, actually, it's the School of Music. And she came back um, just a couple of weeks ago and did a full hour long recital of of music from this period, uh, poetry from this period, set to music. In some cases, the, they were. Uh, contemporaneous settings and in some cases they were new settings and then Mm -hmm. she reprised a lot of the songs that she sang at that fall program too Um, and it was just 
the most beautiful, wonderful thing. I think music sounds especially amazing in Beinecke's I think you're absolutely. I think you're so, absolutely right. Because yeah. when I, I saw the Shades, the, is mm-hmm. that their name? Yeah, shades? shades. And they were just fabulous. Oh, yeah. And I thought, wow. Yeah. I was so, I think I was so moved by them. Yeah. And then I saw them in other places. But in that space, you know. So tell me about the... The, the Beinecke just reopened, right? Mm-hmm. Because it had been closed for a minute to mm-hmm. to do some renovations. And mm-hmm. I was there talking to someone about the renovations at one of the receptions. And uh, they were talking about they had to do all this stuff and move books. They had to move all those books and, yes. and put them in secure places mm-hmm. and, you know, and do all the work that they had to do and then bring them all back. Mm-hmm. And, so now were you a part of that? Were you, did you know about that? or I did know about it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I wasn't I wasn't part of the immediate planning. There was actually a whole committee of of Beinecke staff that were involved in the planning of the renovation um, throughout. And it was kind of, you know, even before I started working at Beinecke about four years ago, they started planning the renovation before I even came. Mm-hmm. So, you know, more than almost you know more than two years before it began. And then it took 16 months. Um so uh, so there were a lot of people who were involved and, and there were, you know, most of what we did was behind the scenes. So if you come to visit by Nikki now and have been before, you might not notice a whole lot that's different. Mm-hmm. We did replace all of the lighting uh, and the electrical systems. So the lighting might seem a little bit brighter and cleaner. It's just like a, there's a, something, the glass seems cleaner. You know, there's there's something about it that seems a little shinier, but yes. it's... um. But most of what we did was behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. So, but yeah, it was 16 months that we were all uh, out of the building. So I had a temporary office in Sterling Library, which is, you know, on the other side of Wall Street from Beinecke. And, um, and we were just kind of, and we had our reading room open the whole time. And our staff was actually paging. We did take all of the books out of the tower, but most of them, we actually moved to the basement of Beinecke. So our staff was getting, retrieving those books for people wearing hard hats and work boots uh, during in a construction site, basically. Mm-hmm. So it was pretty harrowing in some ways, but we survived and now we're almost, the punch list is almost done and we're back in and we've had, you know, we've been very busy since we reopened. I, I can, so. I mean, I can tell I've seen, like I've seen some video pieces that people have shot. Mm-hmm. I love the video that I'm in that um, Travis, <laughs> yeah. I think it's Carbonella, yeah. Carbonella mm-hmm. shot. Which just looked beautiful. <laughs> Not that I looked beautiful, but I thought you looked beautiful. But I thought he captured that feeling, you know, that yeah. it had a coolness to it. Mm-hmm. And I thought, ooh, that was really nice. You know, I just and I've been sharing that thing. Because I think the 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 work, the exhibit is stunning. And I don't think people uh, understand that, you know, the that you could go and see this stuff and be so connected to this to this time in this era mm-hmm. and, and, and it's free. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and you don't have to travel to New York, right? Like, right. And, and it's free. So you could come and see a little bit of it at lunchtime one day and then come see the rest of it. Another, another day, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot to, to see and you could come more than once. Yes. So. I have to make my way. I mean, I've been in there several times, but I I'm like that. Like I have to come and mm-hmm. spend a little more time and pour over things mm-hmm. and, you know, but I think it's a wonderful exhibit. So now how long does it run? How long? It closes April 17th. So it's going to be up through the middle of April. Okay. And so what do you do after that? Like, what's the next thing? Is well, there another thing? <laughs> um, I actually am working on uh, a small exhibition for next year. We don't normally do 
uh, exhibition. We normally do exhibitions about every two or three years. The okay. curators do so, but I'm doing a small one next year on um, Richard Wright's novel Native Son. So it's about the stage and the film adaptations of that novel. Wow, which um, are are both very fascinating stories and kind of happened separately. And um, so I'm doing just a little piece of. We're doing a larger exhibition on. Uh, the f- the whole building on on the idea of collaboration. So mm-hmm. that that's going to be my contribution to that exhibition. Mm-hmm. So I'm working on that, and um, and just you know doing the other things that. <laughs> <laughs> now, do do you hear criticisms about um, why some of these papers or work is here at at Beinecke as opposed to say I don't know Howard or Morehouse or I don't know wherever someplace yeah. black that is black, <laughs> or why isn't it at the Schomburg? I don't, I don't hear that a lot because I think researchers have been so happy to be able to access the material here mm-hmm. that that um, Yale has taken very good care of this material and made it very accessible. So um, lots and lots of research has been written. You know, tremendous biographies of uh, Langston Hughes and Richard Wright have been written out of uh, research in our collections. And so I think the fact that that we we make it available that our finding aids and our catalogs are online um, and able to be found so that you can do some of the research online before you come, that our reading room is one of the best places to do research in the world. That all makes it, makes people happy that the material is here. Mm-hmm. People do ask, you know, why is it here rather than somewhere else? But I think that that is often um, the the answer. And, um, you know, Van Vechten, Carl Van Vechten, who founded the collection, had some some ideas about this that we might think of as kind of strange today. So he was, he actually was actively thinking about placing African-American materials in a white institution by founding this collection at Yale. And then he founded a collection at Fisk university mm-hmm. for, he convinced Georgia O'Keeffe to donate a lot of her and Alfred Stieglitz's art collection to Fisk. Um, and that was a kind of way of placing white, art at uh, an african-american institution mm-hmm. so he had this kind of idea of you know cross-pollination i guess that's a, and, um, you know that's very forward thinking but Don't yeah you think? and so well it you know i think that people have people you know now might might think it, it's simplistic or they might have some 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 misgivings about it but that i think is what he had in mind mm-hmm. yeah so i kind of i mean i like it i mean i you know i've i've seen some of the remarks on some of your sites, your social media sites and people mm-hmm. sort of taking issue with, mm-hmm. you know, this white institution housing, you know, this black literary work. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, and I think I got there. I think I got to the point where I was like, well, you know, this place is taking good care of this and they are all about the preservation. They're not sort of saying, well, we have this body of work and we're just going to store it, but you are making it very accessible so that, People can come and look at it and mm-hmm. you know, you're not hiding it. You're not like trying to remove it out of the public eye. Right. But you really do care. Um, yeah. Well, and the Langston Hughes papers are actually our most requested collection at Beinecke. Why? In all of our collections. Why? What, what are people wanting to see? Like what, what is the thinking? I don't know. I mean, the, uh, people are doing all people are able to do and are doing all kinds of projects with the with that with those papers mm-hmm. because they're so varied in what he saved and what he saved is really interesting. So I even actually saw a paper at a conference where someone was writing about um, these African tourism postcards 
And so their project was about African tourism postcards, but she found them in Langston Hughes's papers. <laughs> so, um, wow. so we see lots of different kinds of projects being being done with his papers, and that's what that's one of the reasons I think people request them a lot. But he corresponded with so many different people. I was talking to Michael Moran this morning actually about how he corresponded with Audrey Lord. Yes. Um, so you know, so he so there are so many different figures over time who can be found in his papers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so there are great letters from Lorraine Hansberry to him. There are great letters from, you know, there are a couple of great letters from James Baldwin to him. So, you know, so there's a lot there's a lot of variety there. And that's why I think people are kind of pulling lots of different different bits of it. Mm-hmm. But I don't know exactly what they are requesting in every case. But, but that's what the I fact that it is a high requested or highly requested body of work mm-hmm. says something yeah. to you know to the interest and and so we we recognize that and we you know we um we showcase this collection i mean we're celebrating it it in tremendous fashion this year but we showcase this this collection all the time mm-hmm. and we're very proud to have it and so i think that that might help mitigate some of the concerns well about. it feels so much more i mean the binocu feels much more accessible to me now than it has ever been that's great I'm, and I'm, i don't i don't say that as a criticism i'm just i just wasn't it just fell off my radar like mm-hmm. i didn't if you don't talk about it or if you don't see it i just i don't think we think about it but i've been you know everywhere i go you know in my circle of friends and you know i belong to the, the my sorors my deltas and we've been talking about, oh, we have to get over there. You know, some of us have to get over there. We should go see this. So people are whispering and talking about it in a way that I've never heard anybody talk about the Beinecke. <laughs> well, that is so nice to hear. It to is. Yeah. It really is. And it's it's a wonderful thing to have this gem of this library in our midst. And I'm like, you know, there's so many jewels in this community. But, mm-hmm. but, but this is a different kind of a jewel, right? This is a different kind of feeling. Um if you just tuned in, this is Babs Rolls Ivy and this is Love Babs Love Talk. And you're listening to us on 103.5 FM WNHH. I'm having this wonderful, oh, and it's live streamed on NewHavenIndependent.org. I'm having this wonderful conversation with Melissa Barton. She's a curator uh, over at the Beinecke Library. <laughs> and we're talking about the exhibit over there, Gather Out of Stardust. Um, and it's about the Harlem Renaissance. So what else, I, you know, what else I thought was charming? That, that, that little map of all the, the places where people could go. Oh, like yeah. the bar. Mm-hmm. Like that was the coolest thing I've ever seen. Yeah. We just acquired that last year. <laughs> so it was just a hugely, you know, I already knew that I was working on this exhibition when it went up for auction. And this so looks like its own piece it. of artwork. And it's an artwork. Yeah. And I, so when I saw it, I was like, we have to have this. And like, it was I'd love so a great. print of that. Yeah. Like, I would love to have a print of that and I would frame it up and hang it up because <laughs> it's just the coolest thing. I thought, I was like, look at this. And it tells you everywhere in Harlem where, you know, you could go and do this and there was all these places and, mm-hmm. and these are real places. They weren't made up. Yeah, there's it's 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 wonderful in that respect. And then there's it's also hilarious. I mean, there are so many different little jokes going on in it. Yeah, so many. And, <laughs> and so there's something very clever and like slightly satirical about it, too, that I really love. Yes, I yeah. think you're right. So. But it's a good piece. So that mm-hmm. so that was a wonderful addition mm-hmm. um, to that. Um, so. Talk about uh, the women of the Harlem Renaissance. <laughs> Speak a little bit about that. I mean, because we, we talk about Langston, we talk about County Cullen, we talk about Claude McKay, and maybe Zora. I mean, we of course, yeah. Zora, but who are the other players in yeah, this, there, this Well, time? there are two women who I would certainly highlight, who I was uh, really surprised to learn that neither of them were ever photographed by Carl Van Vechten, and they're so important 
that I was really surprised about this. One of them um, is Jessie Fawcett. Mm -hmm. She was the literary editor of the Crisis magazine. So she is the person who I think we could credit with discovering Langston Hughes. I mean, Mm -hmm. Hughes just orchestrated his own discovery in another way. but, But she was the first person to publish Langston Hughes's poetry. And she really mentored him and encouraged him. And she herself wrote, now I can't remember if it's two or three novels, but she wrote several novels um, and so and, and, and really promoted the careers of all of these writers who were getting their start by being published in the crisis. Um, she was she was W.E.B. Du Bois's kind of right hand in mm-hmm. the leadership of that magazine. So she's a tremendously important figure. Um, so and then the other is Gwendolyn Bennett. Bennett was younger. She was a member kind of of that younger cohort that Hughes and Cullen were also part of. And she was friends with all of them. She was one of the co-editors of the magazine Fire that they did in 1926 that um, has is, is the subject of a lot of scholarly attention now. She was an artist, a visual artist. She, she, got, she got her degree at Pratt. Um, she trained as a visual artist. And she also wrote poetry and fiction. Mm-hmm. So she was just tremendously talented she had a, a brief period where she actually had a column i love this she had a uh, she started a column in in the magazine opportunity which was one of the other leading journals at this time that was a gossip column about literature so <laughs> it's like langston hughes is working on a book now you know it's like <laughs> um, in her column which i love that you know and we have um we have this great group of letters that she wrote to harold jackman who was a friend of hers who's county collins best friend um while she did a year abroad in paris uh to study she went over there on a fellowship to study art and so it's again because she was away she's writing about what's going on and so we Mm -hmm. get all this evidence about that and they're just really wonderful she's so uh her writing her her letters are so lively and so magnetic and there's we only have one photograph of her in the collection and she's doing this like pose she's just kind of like sassy i just love her so so she's another person who i think is is really important and a lot of people do appreciate her and we just um i want to say three years ago by nikki acquired a couple of boxes of her papers oh okay um so that was really exciting uh but but she's a, a you know a really important uh, woman and then another one and i'm only talking uh, you know about writers but i could talk about some of the the musical artist too uh, but um, Augusta Savage who was a sculptor so she um, it trains as a, a sculptor and, and I'm now blanking on on where she did her training but she comes she grows up in Jacksonville in the Jacksonville area in Florida moves to New York um, lops 10 years off of her age and goes to college um, <laughs> she wow uh, yeah she and Zora Neale Hurston both did that. Um, yes, actually. I knew Zora yeah. did that. Yes. So, um, so well, you she... know, black women, you can't really tell how old we are anyway. So, <laughs> so she um, she applies for a, a fellowship in, in Paris. She wins it, and then they turn her down when they learn that she's African-American. Um, and so this becomes like a huge cause celeb in the community. There's all these people kind of up in arms about it. And so then she she's kind of like... A, a darling artist mm-hmm. and um, she gets all these commissions. So she does all these sculpture busts of you know, Marcus Garvey and W.E.B. Du Bois. And then much later mm-hmm. in the, in the late thirties, she gets a commission to do a sculpture for the world's fair in New York in 1939. So she decides to do this 
tremendous, a 16 foot tall sculpture with 12 singers who are lined up at different heights so that they look like a harp. Mm-hmm. And she calls it Lift Every Voice and Sing after James Weldon Johnson and Rosamond Johnson's song. Um, and so we have a little like maquette, a little uh, replica, of, a, a, a miniature replica of this because it was huge. It was cast in plaster and it was destroyed after the fair. So it wasn't okay. saved. Okay. Um, but she was a tremendous, um, tremendous artist. So, so Melissa, do you hear from descendants of, of these folks? Well, it's really interesting because um, a couple of of people kind of related to these people or, or, or descended from these people have have shown up. So, for example, the people who now own the house that Augusta Savage lived in for the last 10 years of her life in the Catskills, they came to the exhibition and introduced themselves to me. Really? <laughs> yeah, so that was really fascinating, <laughs> yeah. Or, um, you know, there's a couple of other examples in, of, of people who who have, have kind of shown up and say, said, I'm related to this person. Um, and that's been really fun. Wow. To find out about, yeah. I, I would imagine that someone, I mean, I if they hear about it or get wind of it, you know, that they would come and want to yeah, see, right? I hope so, yeah. You know, because I so. think that's a wonderful sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been one of the best conversations I've had in a long time. I've enjoyed this. Oh, thank this. you. I've enjoyed it too. I've Thanks enjoyed so this very much. I love the exhibit. I think you are amazing. You're handling <laughs> beautifully. Hey, Mike Moran. I love you too, <laughs> because I know he's listening. Um, so, so yeah, so we have to do our best to make sure that everybody sees this. Yes. And I know you guys have some kind of outreach going on because I've seen pictures of students in and we've out had of a there. Lot of, we've had a lot of students, not to, and middle school and high school students in, both from New Haven and from the surrounding Oh, suburbs. great. So it's been really nice That's to good. have all these students coming in. Yeah. That's good because they, they, you know, they probably won't have real interest in it. But somewhere down the line, they will remember that they were in that space and saw that. Yeah, because that's, that's just how life works, exactly, right? Exactly, right. You know, especially so, with teenagers. Yeah, no. I mean, I remember <laughs> the things that I've gone to that I was like, "Oh God, I have to go to this." But it has served me later when mm-hmm. I was like, "Oh yeah, yes, yes, I was there. I saw that, and you know, yeah." So it will serve you well. So, yeah. well, best of luck to you. Thank you so much. This was a wonderful, wonderful exhibit, everybody. If you have not gotten yourself over to the Beinecke, you need to get there before April seventeenth. That's right. When it um when it sort of goes, you know, floats back into the into its real spaces. But <laughs> for now, it's right front and center. You can go check it out. And the and the Mondays will last until um uh for the whole length yeah, of the, the exhibit. Mondays are the, yeah, the Mondays will continue all the way to the end. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And those are rich because I know you had Willie Ruff do one. Yeah. I couldn't it make that tremendous. when I had a competing event. Oh my gosh, it was and I so love packed. Willie Ruff, right? Yeah. Because that whole jazz thing Oh yeah, he's thing fabulous. Is, whew, and I yeah. go to all their concerts. Like I yeah. go to everything over there. So I love it. Um, but yeah, so you've had some amazing folks come and talk and mm-hmm. share and be about yeah. that well and this monday also uh i should put in a plug because the professor i just spoke about he's talking on monday about aaron douglas's art oh, Robert good. so good. that's going to be wonderful okay that'll be good yeah and so and i'm glad that people are showing up and rediscovering the beinecke yeah and loving it and it's quite accessible so so thank you so much melissa well, thank you it's so much pleasure. this is really great thank you so thank much. you thank you harry for producing yeah thank you <laughs> All right, so play my song out. We're going to go. Thank you. I'll see y'all next week. I don't know who I'm talking to, but I talk to the most interesting of people. Bye. Tuesday gets here. I'm already hoping for the hump day. Wednesday night. 
hands are still tight Thursday brings a smile Cause I won't be putting up with this bull In a little while Me and my girls, we turned it up last week Boys love this club cause ladies get Yeah.